HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty and the jazz as musicians, it's like it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to the 150th episode of Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. The National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, or NSAC, recently released a position paper titled Agriculture and Climate Change, Policy Imperatives and Opportunities to Help Producers Meet the Challenges. It explores the impact of climate change on U.S. agriculture and agriculture's role in contributing to climate change. It also delves into how the ag sector can mitigate its collective effect and offers a comprehensive set of federal policy solutions that will enable and support producers in doing so. Joining me on the show today to unpack this report is Ferd Hefner, a senior strategic advisor at, NA, at, at NSAC, and Mark Schoenbeck, principal author of the report. Ferd and Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad Thank to you. be here. All right. Awesome. So just to get started, Ferd, can you give us a brief summary of um, the coalition's mission? Sure. We've been around since the late 1980s, and we joined together grassroots groups from around the country who otherwise wouldn't have a voice in Washington, D.C., to give them that voice um, so that they can speak to key policy reform that would support a more sustainable agriculture and food system. And we have over 130 member organizations pretty much from coast to coast and um, joined their 
their voices together to give us some real power in the Washington lobbying context. And do you support small and mid-sized farms specifically? Yeah, we we we're, we are a big tent. We're not um, any one specific thing, but our our membership is pretty much drawn from that mid-scale agriculture, um, family farm type agriculture from around the country. So we don't exclude uh, anybody, um, but that is certainly our focus. And we're very involved and interested in making sure that uh, the, 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 the focus of federal policy is really to create economic opportunity and not to foreclose it through excessive consolidation. Um, okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, so, Mark, what was the goal as the, the principal author of this report? What was the goal of writing this position paper, and what's new about its context or contents? Uh, well, let me first clarify that I'm one of three principal authors. The yes. others are Jim Bell of Delta Land and Community. And the other is Jeff Shazinski of uh, National Center for Appropriate Technology, who are both member groups of uh, NSAC, National Sustainable Ag Coalition. Uh, the reason I became one of the authors is that I had recently completed some work with the Organic Farming Research Foundation, uh, with whom I'm working as a research associate. And we completed a um, Farmers' uh, Guide on Soil Health Related to Climate Issues, um, and it's specifically focused on organic agriculture, organic farmers, um, and those practices and systems that comply with the National Organic Standards. Um, so a lot of the research I did there was also relevant to the NSAC document, and basically the goal of this document is to gather together the most recent research on how agriculture affects climate through net uh, greenhouse gas emissions, how uh, how the climate itself, the climate change is impacting agriculture, which is getting quite serious in recent years, and thirdly, how organic and other sustainable systems, what we call agroecological systems, can actually greatly mitigate agriculture's impact on the climate and perhaps even zero it out. And in addition, the practices that minimize greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture also happen to strengthen the resilience of the farming system itself, largely by building soil health and biodiversity and by reducing farmer costs for fertilizers and uh, irrigation and other benefits. So the goal of this, of this particular paper is to provide the scientific basis for building policy and for building policy advocacy, for reviewing proposals that come from um, members of Congress or congressional committees or from presidential and other political candidates, and also to develop our own proposals that will help farmers better cope with uh, the climate changes that are already in the pipeline, and also to help farmers become actively part of the solution 
mm-hmm. and rebuild their soils and thereby take some carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay. And um, so, first, I'll let you add some more context to the overall purpose of this um, uh, NCAC publication. Well, I think that I think that you. Um you know, did a did a great job summarizing that, Mark. I think that you know, um, Ferd, I would love your perspective on why this paper was published now, and also, um, you know, it's it's the authors are clear that it's um, specifically addressing what the farm bill can do, and so I'm wondering why the focus on the farm bill specifically, especially after it was just recently reauthorized. Right, great question. So. This is an update of a paper we wrote back in 2008-2009, which was the last time Congress was dealing with comprehensive climate change legislation. And our theory of of the paper and the prospects is that there is a very good chance that comprehensive climate change legislation will be back on the agenda in 2021 or one of the years very closely thereafter. So we wanted to be uh, up to date on the science and our policy recommendations and really ready to go. Now, relative to the Farm Bill, you know, the Farm Bill is comprehensive legislation that contains a lot of programs related to farm production and conservation and agricultural research and credit and crop insurance and a whole lot of issues. So because it's comprehensive, many of the same tools that reside in the Farm Bill will also be very relevant to a climate bill. Um, There's a chance now the next Farm Bill would be in 2023. Um, There's a very good chance that there may be climate legislation before we get to the next Farm Bill or even simultaneously with it. So whether it's one vehicle or the other or both at the same time, mm. we just want to be pre prepared with our ideas. I mean, here's hoping. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So to get also to kind of it will help kind of help contextualize um, you know, this report and where we need to go, if you can give just an overview of kind of the general state of the farm economy right now and like what are the main drivers, I think this will help maybe potentially inform the likelihood of any issues, uh, movement on these issues. Right. And the the farm economy has been in a bad way for several years running, and the um, climate uh, change disruption that we see going on is definitely adding to the pain. Um, This past year has seen record flooding, Mm. and and in previous years, some record drought, or both at the same time, depending on where you live. So that makes a bad situation worse, but commodity prices have been relatively low and don't seem to be moving out of that. So a lot of the economic forecasts call for the the present sort of less than mediocre economic situation uh, continuing for potentially many, many years ahead. And added on top of that is the trade and tariff war that President Trump has um, undergone with multiple of our key trading partners, uh, which is adding a whole lot of uncertainty uh, to the situation. So that that there's there's no talk immediately about you know opening up the farm bill early mm-hmm. in part because the administration has 
put together $28 billion of uh, farm bailout money be based on the trade war repercussions. Right. So um, that it, it would not be beyond the, the considerations for the future based on past experience to see Congress decide that they want to respond to this crisis themselves. But I don't suspect that will happen next year. So I think, again, 2021 would be the earliest. Yeah. Okay. I've got a lot of questions about like the farm economy specifically, um, which I I'm going to put aside for now. But um, okay. I think <laughs> I it just sparked like um, a lot of, a lot of thoughts. So, but for now, we're going to focus on the report, and then hopefully, if we have time at the end of the episode, I want to come back to like a lot of things that you said. Um, all right, Mark. Can you um, like in in shifting to the report? It detailed. Um, a lot of the effects of climate change that it has on agricultural production. Um, can you kind of help paint a picture for what these uh, effects look like? Um, maybe provide an example of one farmer's experience that you have um, been familiar with? Oh, well, I probably could be start with some reports from the, some quotes from the uh, 2016 publication by Organic Farming Research Foundation called the National Organic Research Agenda. Basically, they interviewed over a 1,000 organic farmers to find out what other key challenges that they need research assistance with. And the extremes and the uh, back-and-forth alternation of extremely wet and extremely dry, or in some cases, extremely hot and extremely cold, came up several times um, the one farmer just basically said, climate change is about to put me out of business. He was a, a livestock farmer in the Midwest, dealt with one uh, one year that was too dry and several years that were too wet, had bad effects on the um, livestock and the pasture. And then a couple of extreme cold snaps. Another, um, another area where climate change has perhaps a subtle effect is on fruit production, tree fruit and tree nut production. There's two things that happen. Out in California, what the uh, pistachio and walnut growers have noticed is that as climate change has proceeded, the chill hours, the number of days and hours below a certain temperature that these tree crops require during the winter in order to initiate growth and fruit set at a normal time in the spring. Those requirements are not being fulfilled because of the increase in average temperatures. And it's having a very severe impact on how much they can harvest. Mm-hmm. Here in Virginia and a lot of other places around the country, we have these very mild winters. And then all of a sudden, it gets cold in the spring. It may be that it's not even a record-breaking frost. But if you get a 25-degree night in April after a whole winter where it's hardly ever gone down below 25, the fruit trees are already in bloom rather than just barely breaking dormancy. I remember one year we had almost no winter about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then the first week of April was winter. It snowed, it went into the upper teens, and there was no local fruit. That's another example. Um, Another example I read about recently um, in a review of some research that's been done, is that 
in the upper, in the northern Great Plains, where you would think that the climate change will be beneficial because you have a longer growing season. Mm-hmm. What happens is it's so hot and dry in the summer that the farmers are scrambling to get their crops in earlier, and that means that they need seeds that can cope with colder and wetter soil in order to complete their life cycle in a warming climate. So, so it's... A lot of, uh, and there's a lot of subtleties here, but there is a projection from the USDA Economic Research Service um, looking at the effects of climate change on crop yields and crop insurance and how much the crop insurance programs will cost the taxpayer. And the main, one of the interesting things I showed is that although the uh, increase in cost of insurance looks relatively modest, somewhere around 10 to 20 percent, there are parts of the southern half of the United States where non-irrigated corn and soybean yields are expected to be cut by half by late this century. So food security will be much more seriously threatened than the immediate budget of the insurance program. I'm wondering if industry and maybe specifically consumers have impa- like have experienced any impact and you know has it been maybe similarly more subtle to the point where maybe consumers don't feel a sense of urgency to demand action on this. Yeah, I'll jump, this is Fred, I'll jump in. I, I, I would say that I think that's true, that consumers haven't seen a dramatic, direct impact. Um, I, but that, that doesn't mean consumers aren't interested, and I think the the number of agricultural companies you see trying to market uh, based on climate and environmental-related issues is a sign that they believe that consumers are paying attention. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's a ripe area, but in terms of price effects, I don't think they've seen that in any dramatic way. Mark, did you have some thoughts on this, too? Um, well, actually, one of the other subtle effects is that the distribution of certain pests is shifting. And I have definitely noticed that certain um, specialty crops that I depend on every, you know, I expect to see at the store every year, that from time to time, although suddenly something is either not available or it's very expensive, and I learned that it has been related to extreme weather or disease outbreaks causing crop failures. Mm-hmm. And of course, this has always happened, but it does seem like it's happening a little more often than will continue to happen more often. Right. And just to give us a sense, you know, kind of probably should have started with this, but Mark, how much of a contributor is agriculture on climate change? Like how big of a contributor? two ways in which agriculture can affect climate change. One is what's called direct agricultural greenhouse gas emissions, which is about 8.4% of the United States total greenhouse gas, uh, human-caused climate change impact. Mm -hmm. Now, this is in terms of carbon dioxide equivalent. So when you look at a molecule of methane, it does as much climate damage as 20 molecules of carbon dioxide. And actually, I think it's a pound-per-pound ratio. But the ratio for nitrous oxide is 300 times. So nitrous oxide is a gas that is given off in small quantities from soils with lots of available soluble nitrogen. And so the greenhouse gas footprint 
the direct emissions footprint of um, agriculture, half of that is due to nitrous oxide coming from fertilized soil. And another quarter, very roughly, is due to what's called enteric methane, which is a natural digestive process in cattle and other ruminants, goats and sheep. And uh, when they belch after eating some grass, Mm -hmm. they give off methane. Mm -hmm. And that is fairly unavoidable. There's a third sector sector of uh, greenhouse gas from agriculture that is from manure management. And it's mainly in um, confined animal feeding operations where you have huge amounts of manure from huge numbers of animals that need to be dealt with in a small space. And there is an increasing use of liquid manure handling facilities. Okay. Like it's mixed with water and flushed away into these large lagoons or storage pits or storage tanks. Those give off additional methane. Now, if the manure is dry stacked or if the animals are out on pasture but they're not well managed and they poop in one place and it piles up creating kind of an um, animal deposited pile, mm-hmm. those dry stacks give off a little nitrous oxide. And But the main driver for the slight upward trend in direct greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture is the increased use of lagoons. Okay. And if if livestock were pastured and the pasture was managed very well through uh, rotational grazing, where the animals are in a paddock for a day or two, they eat the best of the grass, and they stop it down, and they leave their manure and urine, and then they moved out, and that whole area is allowed to regrow for a couple of months. The manure-related greenhouse gas emissions go way down, and the soil and the forage become so healthy when they're managed that way that they will sequester about a ton of carbon every year per acre. So that really adds up to a nearly zero footprint for uh, livestock production if it's on best managed uh, rotational grazing that even though they're still giving off just about as much enteric methane from their digestive process, Mm -hmm. the fact that the manure is managed so well and the fact that those um, pastures are getting healthier, the soil is accumulating organic matter and therefore accumulating carbon, you end up with an almost neutral footprint there. It's, it's uh, make a huge difference. Now, I've been talking about direct emissions, and then I touched on sequestration. There's another aspect of agriculture's impact on the world's carbon balance and therefore on the climate. If soils are not managed well, they lose organic matter, and that inorganic matter becomes carbon dioxide. If we expand the area that we have in cropland, and we put the plow to pasture or prairie, or we raise forests to turn it to cropland, all of the carbon in that biomass, several tons per acre, joins the soil carbon loss going up in the atmosphere. So... In the past, 
like in the early to mid to late 20th century, when more and more land was being cleared and uh, standard agricultural practices were pretty uniformly pretty bad and they created things like the Dust Bowl, that was a large part of our emissions. Now, it's becoming somewhat less so in this country, but the big opportunity is through organic farming practices and other agroecological systems um, that integrate best crop management, cover cropping, uh, returning organic residues to the soil, um, integrated systems for soil health management, and add to that the uh, uh, management sense of rotational grazing. Um, agriculture has the potential to become a net carbon sink, uh, enough possibly to offset much of the nitrous oxide and methane that is inevitably generated uh, through standard practices. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, um, Ferd, can you help us anchor like that 8.5%, that statistic, like overall in terms of contrib- major contributors by industry, let's say, to climate change to help us understand how big or not big agriculture is as a sector that impacts climate change? Right. So the, so the big sectors are transportation and energy. Um, and then in the second tier, there are several things, including agriculture. So it's, it's very significant. I mean, you know, close to 10%, mm-hmm. but it, it's dwarfed by the energy sector and the transportation sector. Okay. And then, you know, I want to, I want to kind of transition and talk a little bit about some of the, um, like legislative and, um, just like overall sort of, uh, policy issues that have contributed to sort of pushing farmers into farming in a way that may not be as sustainable. So one of the things that paper talks about is the federal crop insurance program. And that's something that certainly we've covered in the show quite a bit lately. Um, But can you help us, like, can you just help us understand the link between our current farm subsidy, subsidy program and climate change as it stands now? Sure. It's a big topic, but I'll, I'll give you the broad brush. Um, <laughs> it is a the, lot. Sorry, it's a lot. Can you summarize that in a minute? <laughs> the federal crop insurance program is sort of half of the basic safety net of programs for the basic commodities. Uh, so the grains and oilseeds and cotton are the primary ones. Um, and the I would I would point two to two things related to climate change. One is Mark already just touched on this a little bit is expanding the amount of cropland in the country, or if not expanding it in total, plowing up new grasslands to put into crops. And the existence of a crop insurance program, which is ensuring not just yield but also price. And that's very important. We call it crop insurance. It's actually revenue insurance. So mm-hmm. it's, it's insuring farmers against yield declines and price declines. Um, and so that the existence of that is an encouragement to people to put more land into cropland. And the Farm Bill has a very direct way of dealing with that. It's a policy called Sod Saver. And it... Um, it discourages or reduces the amount of subsidy involved in those situations, but, and this is very important, 
It only applies to northern states where that is a relevant consideration, and it does not apply to the historic Dust Bowl states, uh, so it doesn't apply to Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and that's a really big problem. <laughs> so I'll just point that out. But besides encouraging more crop production, it's also what type of crop production is being encouraged. And there are a few small programs that National Sustainable Ag Coalition has been key player in pushing that don't look at insurance as insuring particular crops, but instead insuring an entire farm and all their enterprises. But the vast majority, close to 90% of all insurance, is for single crop uh, support. And so it, it, in a way, it encourages and incentivizes monoculture um, and not the kind of more biodiverse agroecological systems that Mark referred to at the beginning of the show mm-hmm. that are really critical to making big change in terms of climate change mitigation. So it, it's not necessarily a barrier. You could design federal crop insurance to not be a barrier to diversification, but the way it's structured right now, that's a primary effect. And then that's the, that's on the insurance side. The other side of the safety net is the direct commodity support through the Farm Bill, and mm-hmm. um, that has its has its own set of issues that are similar to crop insurance. But um, unlike crop insurance, where the farmer is paying for a portion of the insurance, mm-hmm. the commodity program support is entirely taxpayer supported. So that's the primary difference. And oh, that is that is a super helpful breakdown. And would you say that's kind of the other, that's the other bucket of like structural barriers that incentivize overproduction and market consolidation? Yeah, the, historically the farm programs, com- commodity programs in particular, were geared to keep prices at a stable level, at a sort of moderately high but stable level. And so the whole gist of policy from the 1930s to the 1990s was to pay farmers to, or not, to support farmers to not go to all-out production. And there were different variations of that, but different ways of cutting back on production. And since the mid-1990s through today, we've completely gotten rid of all those management programs to keep supply and demand in some kind of adjustment. So now the basic farm program safety net programs are just encouraging all-out production. And and that's, that's, that's problematic for the farmer mm-hmm. because there's wide springs, uh, up and downs, and farm prices and therefore farm income, um, less stable, um, more extremes. And those are extremes are now accelerated by the effects of climate change. Um, and you can really see that in this past year where there's just dramatic flooding that led to a, a sort of enfor- nature-enforced supply management rather than federal policy for this past year. And in in, res- in response, the can you tell us what the administration has done to sort of mitigate the effects of that? Is that the direct payments that we've seen come through? 
Well, yeah, on top of the farm bill uh, payment structure, mm-hmm. the administration has laid on a whole additional what's called market facilitation payments um, to try to make up for the fact that export markets have really declined as a result of the tariff war that the president has been pursuing. And those programs are so big that they're actually dwarfing the farm bill programs. Um, and to combine, the farm bill programs and the market facilitation payments have represented almost a third of total net farm income this year. Wow. Um, okay, one more question before we go to a really quick commercial break, and this is something we kind of touched on a little bit, but can you um, for tell us about the, just in general, we've talked quite a bit on the show about consolidation, industry consolidation, and I'm wondering if you can kind of summarize before we go to break the effects of consolidation um, that consolidation has had on climate change. Yeah, I can try. So uh, the, the primary effect of consolidation is uh, pressure on the consumer and on the farmer as the newly highly consolidated industry is able to use their market power to um, re- reduce the compensation that farmers are getting for products and keeping consumer prices nonetheless higher than they might otherwise be. And that's a whole topic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But I I just lay that out first because in terms of climate change, uh, I think some people would argue that having fewer, bigger economic powers uh, at the the middle of the farm production chain actually could be a positive if all those companies acted in in enlightened self-interest and really... Uh, plan for climate change and thereby um, tried to get the entire supply chain from farm to fork uh, to to align themselves in a way that would be optimal for dealing with climate change. I would suggest that that is perhaps a naive hope um, <laughs> and that you know, profit maximization will probably continue to be the leading uh, driver driver of, yeah. of what's going on in the economic sector. But but you certainly hear those arguments, and there's certainly been more supply chain discussions around climate in the last few years than there ever have been before. And I, I don't want to completely rain on that. I think I think there's you know some some hope in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it will take citizen activists to really keep that an honest discussion. Okay, great. All right. So um, we are going to take a really quick commercial break. Um, but when we get back, we're going to kind of delve a little bit more into some of the suggested solutions that this position paper lays out that will support their uh, almost 30 different policy recommendations. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. 
Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today uh, we are talking all about the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition's recent released, recently released position paper on agriculture and climate change um, with Bird Hoffner and uh, Mark Schoenbeck. So before we um, before break, we started. I said that we were going to start talking about kind of some of the um, the background behind the policy solutions that this paper recommends. And one of the things um, for that you touched on before break was the. It seems like you're starting to talk about the whole farm revenue protection program Mm -hmm. um, in relation to our previous conversation about crop insurance. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what this is and how it might be an example of um, some of the other recommendations that this paper describes? Sure. So the National Sustainable Ag Coalition has been involved in crop insurance policy for a long time, but we've not until recent years found a crop insurance policy that really addresses the needs of our farmer members who have more diverse cropping systems or crop livestock systems. And so we wanted to create something that would be revenue protection for the entirety of what's happening on a farm rather than forcing farmers to get crop insurance for each crop or enterprise that they're dealing with. And uh, for a highly diversified uh, farm, that's really, really important because otherwise you're just swimming in paperwork for too many insurance products and and too much money uh, out of your pocket. So whole farm revenue protection is the first policy that is covers the entire country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only crop insurance product that covers the entire country. And it, it protects farmers across all of what they're doing on the farm. And it actually contains bonuses the more diversified you are. are. So mm-hmm. it really helps drive things in a direction that um, can support farmers who are doing more systems-based, more conservation-based types of production systems. And it's a small a small potatoes program at this point. It's, it's uh, less than 2% of all of crop insurance. Um, but we think it has great potential to grow over time and hopefully provide a home within the farm safety net for farmers who are driven for their own reasons to want to farm in climate-friendly ways. Okay, great. And Mark, I want to kind of come back to you. So um, you mm-hmm. had started talking about a lot of the different 
um, so solutions, you know, I'm kind of like mm-hmm. um, that farmers, you know, that we need to look at in order to um, make a big change in in agriculture's effect on climate change. So you touched on integrative systems management, carbon sequestration, uh, livestock management. Can you kind of um, give us an overview um, and the relationship between these sort of concepts that you started to talk about earlier? Okay. Um, well, one one area where farm, well, two, two areas where farms can greatly improve their effect on the climate. Mm-hmm. One is what we call carbon sequestration. That's putting carbon back into the soil, organic matter, and back into biomass. So the three leading ways that I can see, that we can all can see, one is the management-intensive rotational grazing system that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take an existing pasture in, let's say it's in fair to poor health, not been really well managed. If you then switch that over to management intensive rotational grazing, um, very often without any inputs whatsoever, even just or perhaps a little, you can get a tremendous improvement in both the pasture quality, uh, which happens to somewhat reduce the uh, enteric methane that comes from the cattle themselves, but most importantly. Um, you're greatly increasing the diversity and the biomass of the forage, and their roots go down six, seven feet, and they're there all the time. And 10 to 20% of the plant's photosynthetic product is going right out the roots to feed the soil life. And the soil life is the, uh, has the central role in regulating long-term carbon sequestration in the soil. It basically converts organic residues, root exudates, uh, manure, everything that's returned to the soil on the surface or throughout the soil profile into um, stable organic matter. Now, some of of course, you know, becomes carbon dioxide because they're respiring. The living organisms do. They eat. They eat for energy. But a significant percentage of whatever they consume becomes a stable organic matter, which can have a long residence time, anywhere from decades to centuries, and uh, so it's not permanent sequestration, but it is much longer term, and it will help take some of the excess out of the atmosphere. Another thing that happens is that when nutrient management is improved, and this is an area where organic methods can really contribute, um, is that you're not putting as much soluble nitrogen into the soil, and that substantially reduces the formation of the nitrous oxide, which is a large part of the agriculture's direct um, emissions. Another important way is any perennialization. If you have an edge of the field that isn't as productive or it's close to a river that you want to protect from nutrient runoff and sediment, um, there are NRCS, uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service, offers cost share for practices such as riparian forest buffer or other, or like hedgerow planting. When you put acreage into woody perennials that have previously been an annual crop, you will sequester over a ton per acre of carbon every year in soil plus biomass organic matter. So there are ways that 
a lot of land that is currently being cropped could be moved into perennial production systems, which can include food crops such as uh, orchard, uh, tree nuts, etc. Um, or can, you can convert cropland to some of the rotationally grazed pasture or what's called silvo pasture, where you have trees which can provide shade for the cattle um, and can also uh, provide other uh, harvestable, saleable products. Integrated with the pasture, that has been shown to uh, accrue some of the most largest amounts of carbon. And then I would say integrated systems. This is actually another question, but I think I'll go ahead and touch on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a lot of talk has been heard back and forth, a lot of debate about whether no-till is the best way or maybe even the only way to sequester carbon in cropland soil. Mm-hmm. Now, no-till by itself allows carbon to accumulate near the surface, and it has a lot of benefits in terms of soil quality and ability to absorb moisture and reducing erosion. At the same time, it's almost impractical to expect any farmer to never till. There's once in a while it's going to be a severe weed problem or another circumstance where they're going to have to run the tiller through there, and that carbon is not very stable. Another very important practice is cover cropping. Whenever the soil is not being, whenever the field is not being used to grow food, it should be growing cover, living plant cover for itself. Uh, there are a series of research-based principles for organic, uh, for uh, excuse me, for soil health in cropland that the Natural Resources Conservation Service has developed. One is keep the ground covered as much as possible. Because erosion itself is uh, responsible for a significant amount of soil organic matter loss. Once that soil washes or blows away, a lot of the carbon is lost because a lot of the organic matter goes with it. So um, keeping the soil covered, keeping that living root, feeding the soil life from the surface all the way down five, six, seven feet for deep-rooted crops. Mm -hmm. Um, The third one is diversity. Even at the same amount of biomass and living root cover, if you have more crops, more different species of plants, you have a more complete and balanced soil uh, food web or, or biotic community in the soil. And then its, its biological functions, including carbon sequestration, are enhanced. So it's very interesting. So any one of those will improve right. uh, the status of the soil. The fourth one is to reduce disturbance. And disturbance, at first, this is all a focus on tillage. But more and more, it's realized that chemical disturbance in the form of soluble fertilizers and synthetic pesticides and even some um, naturally-based pesticides will adversely affect the soil life. Tillage, of course, you know, breaks up earthworms and it breaks up the most uh, beneficial fungal networks, the mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, but then it briefly has been discovered that the alternative to tillage in conventional no-till systems, uh, being herbicides, can also adversely affect those same organisms. So I see two approaches, and it turns out that you could use cover crops plus reduced tillage, reduce tillage as much as you can, mm-hmm plus a diverse rotation that maximizes cover and maximizes uh, living roots, 
all those together, and then if you're an organic farmer or you use organic practices and you put on a little bit of compost, not compost with organic residues, those practices together give you a lot more soil carbon sequestration than any one alone. And the other thing that's very important to realize is that even if on cropland where you have to kill now and then, and you occasionally have to have bare soil while you're waiting for your crop to come up that you just sowed, you may not sequester nearly as much carbon there as you do with a long-term perennial cover or with the management-intensive grazing. However, those croplands are much more resilient. They're much more able to absorb moisture during a heavy downpour. They're much more able to sustain crops through a, a period of drought. Uh, they don't need as much fertilizer, don't need as much irrigation to sustain crop yield. And when you cut your fertilizer, you're not only saving money, you're reducing nitrous oxide. And basically, I want to, well, last comment, there are two approaches to this. One is the organic agriculture approach, and that says no synthetic chemicals. So taking chemical disturbance down to a minimum, slow-release organic sources of nutrients, and then till with care when needed. That's what I call agroecological organic agriculture. And then the other approach is what's called conservation agriculture. And at its best, it basically says no-till, pretty much continuous no-till, and use chemicals very judiciously as needed, some herbicide but not very much. Uh, there's one farmer up in uh, North Dakota uh, who has converted 5,000 acres of depleted ranch land to excellent crop and rotational grazing systems. He's taken a conservation ag approach. He didn't swear off all chemicals, but he's down to the point where any one tract of land gets less than one synthetic application per year. So he's been able to get it down to a minimum, and there's no, basically no tillage. Mm-hmm. I see these two approaching the ideal of a no-till, no-chemical system. And so I, I just think there's a lot to be said for, for both that or, the organic approach um, and just finding out how much these uh, synthetic chemicals do subtly affect the soil food web. And I think there's a lot of interesting research that's going to come out on that in the next 10 years. And I just want to, you know, to clear, like clarify. So you are, you are absolutely a hero of organic agriculture and that has been um, a big part of your background. Um, so, but I just want to, when we talk about kind of like organic farmers, organic farming, I just want to make sure you don't specifically mean those who have the official like USDA certification, because that is me cuts out a lot of, you know, farmers. So it's more like the mm-hmm. concepts that are, that are, that, you know, are important to put forward, not necessarily that everybody needs to have and pursue this specific certification. Is that correct? Okay. Um, well, that's a good question. I, um, the certification has a value. Certainly. In that it is, it is clearly defined. Like there's the other terms like regenerative agriculture uh, that does not have a legal definition. And I will tell you right now that conservation agriculture and organic agriculture can both be done very well and be, both be done not so well. And I believe that the, the value of the research uh, that this paper has covered mm-hmm. is it provides it, it identifies 
the really important things, uh, the integrated systems, that it, 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 it identifies what is most important in building the resilience of the system and also helping to uh, mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so that's a good question. I mean, I think the value of, of organic is it has a legal definition. Right. And yet, in order to optimize the climate resilience and climate mitigation benefits, um, it has to be done well. It isn't just a matter of following the letter. If you follow the spirit of the organic standards, or you follow the spirit as well as the letter of what is the more informal description of conservation agriculture, uh, that'll make a lot of difference as to how beneficial it is. Right. And even conservation agriculture is not legally defined. Uh, so that is the main difference there. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, okay, mm-hmm. so I want to um, I want to transition now and talk about some of the specific policy recommendations that um, are related to the concepts that we have already touched on. And maybe, Ferd, I want to start with you. Can you kind of highlight, um, you know, a couple of the specific recommendations that stand out as being maybe the, I mean, they're all important, but let's just say maybe like the ones that are of, of primary importance, but then are also fairly attainable um, in the next few years. Yeah, that sounds good. I, I, I would say overall, one of our recommendations, this is not one of the specific ones, but bunching them together mm-hmm. is really saying that we need a, strong set of federal incentives that are actually supporting farmers to do the right thing on climate change mitigation. We, I mean, we have billions and billions of dollars going out every year in farm support, but none of them are geared towards uh, climate change mitigation and adaptation. And we really need to turn that corner. It's long overdue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the European Union, by the way, has started turning that corner and adding that into their farm support system. Um, and we are needing to play catch up um, with them and need to get our system oriented that way. So there are two primary ways to do that. One is to take our conservation programs, which come the closest to the ideal, and really strengthen them and greatly increase their funding and really set them off in the direction of having climate being a major factor. Um, you, you, you know, we've concentrated on soil and water and wildlife and other issues, and all of which are related to climate, but we need a much more specific focus on climate. And I think we could get there in fairly short order. Uh, I think it has some, at least some modicum of bipartisan support and a lot of interest from presidential candidates right now. So that, that might be the quickest approach. The harder approach, but I think equally needed, is to take the commodity support and the crop insurance and the the credit programs and the rest of federal agricultural policy and reorient it as well. Mm-hmm. And long-term, I'm not saying in the next five years, but long-term, there's probably very good reason to bring all of those things together in a unified policy rather than having them separate, pursuing their own separate goals. So 
I would say that's that's my one big one, mm-hmm. and my my second follow-up big one would be agricultural research. Uh, probably a less sexy topic um, than than crop support, but I, the way I look at it is the agricultural research that we support today determines what kind of food and agricultural system we're going to have. 20, 25 years from now. It's it's a generation behind because research is a long-term process. Um, But the the sad thing to me right now is we have nearly $3 billion a year in federal agricultural research support, and only a tiny, tiny sliver of that is going towards uh, climate-related, directly to climate-related issues. Um, there's some incredible work going on, and I'm glad it's going on. We just need to really double down and accelerate it and really call it out as uh, as front and center to what we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just as an example of that, that sort of ties back to some of the things Mark was talking about, is, you know, a generation ago, the agricultural research system put its mind together and said, how can we produce more meat more efficiently and agricultural research and you know which was taxpayer supported created the CAFO system the consolidated Mm. animal feeding operation system that we have today and that is sort of leading the the uptick in our effect on climate change Um, so that was you know perhaps not a super positive example (laughs) but the but the my emphasis is on, you know, what we could be doing now could very much determine the way farming is done a generation from now. Absolutely. Um, uh, Mark, do you have anything to add to that that we haven't kind of touched on so far? Um, to those priorities, I would say one thing that I would emphasize is that society as a whole has to learn how to compost and otherwise recycle all this so-called organic waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one uh, comment that I saw on a blog post about a year or two ago. It's something like 60 million tons of municipal leaves are landfilled every year. And when organic matter goes to the landfill, it all becomes methane. Mm-hmm. And those leaves could be mixed with that lagoon manure in a well-managed uh, windrow system and it'll be producing this highly beneficial soil amendment which is known to help anchor carbon in the soil, help build soil health and grow crops that are more vigorous, don't need as much fertilizer and become part of the solution basically. And I would say that one of the reasons to decentralize livestock production is you can integrate crops and livestock, and that helps close nutrient cycles and makes it facilitates composting or other uh, sound management of the manure. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, I think I touched on the others, you know, emphasizing. Uh, so one of the, one of these. One of the policy recommendations was strengthening the capacity of the Conservation Reserve Program to maximize the carbon sequestration potential of sensitive land 
And I think that translates into saying, well, if we've got land that really shouldn't be put to the plow. Yeah. Uh, or land that has been abandoned because it didn't produce very well, and it's just sitting there eroding or growing in bases, get it back to the native prairie, forest, savanna, whatever is the region's um, natural perennial plant community, and put it to work getting some of that carbon out of the air. Was CRP... That's a, yeah, that, that was very important. Was the that program you're referencing, was that cut? Uh, did that experience cuts in the 2018 Farm Bill? I uh, think no, it wasn't. It, it was cut in the 2014 Farm Bill, and then those cuts were restored, uh, mostly restored in the 2018 oh. Farm Bill. Huh. The administration mm-hmm. actually just announced the next sign-up for the CRP um, Friday, just So very timely and also, wow, a good piece of information, which I have not experienced in the past three years. So, (laughs) okay, that's good to know. What has the, all right, also, I just want to, I, this is totally tangential, I think. um, But Ferd, I would love your perspective on the need to reform, while we're talking about reforms, the renewable fuel standard um, as something that needs to happen to address Ag's role in climate change. Yeah, I would, I would boil that down to two things. There's there's a nearly endless academic debate on yeah. the role of corn ethanol as a climate positive or climate negative effect. I think the, the bulk of the research says that it's negative, mod- modestly negative or modestly positive, mm. um, probably more leaning towards the moderately positive in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the the, the big thing about the renewable fuel standard back when it was passed was that, you know, corn-based ethanol uh, was going to be the first generation, and then we would quickly move to the second and third generation of more resource-conserving crops that would become the key biomass uh, ingredient into ethanol and other renewable fuels in the future. And that's what has been so slow in coming online. Um, The expectations, I think, back in the 2007 and 2009 were much more grandiose than what has actually come to pass. So we're still basically dealing with that first generation. So let's let's just say that it's, you know, slightly net, net positive. It's still the case that it's another way that the federal government is supporting more monoculture, mm-hmm. um, which is not leading us down the path to the ultimate solutions of the conservation agriculture type approach uh, that builds in more diversity and integrates crops and livestock. So from that bigger perspective, it's... It, you know, getting beyond just what's the immediate impact of more corn-based ethanol versus more fossil fuels is is looking at what is it doing to the agricultural system, and is that a net positive or a net negative? And my my view is it's a net negative. The last thing I would add is that for all those farmers who are supporting corn-based ethanol because it's key to their economic survival, which I very much appreciate. I think it's incumbent on them and the ethanol companies to move towards a system where if you want to market 
your product into that supply chain, you have to be doing the basic conservation that uh, at least uh, gives you a better chance of being a carbon sequestering farm. And the, the industry, I will say, uses the rhetoric of how they're supporting conservation agriculture, mm-hmm. but it's not because they're requiring it. And there's a place where federal policy, since the renewable fuel standard is a federal policy to begin with, yeah. you could go in and change the renewable fuel policy so that in order to sell, to sell into that supply chain, you'd have to be doing the basics on conservation. And I think that would be a big step forward. Okay. All right. So um, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, but I I do want to talk about politics for a, a hot second, if we can, Ferd. Um, sure. To the extent that you, you know, from your organization feel kind of or comfortable commenting, I'm wondering of every candidate you, that you've seen, I mean, every candidate who has come forward, not just the Democrats, whose policies are kind of the most promising to have an impact um, on agriculture's role specifically in mitigating climate change? Well, it's been quite uh, unprecedented that almost every candidate in the Democratic primary for president has said very strong things about agriculture and climate. Um, We've never seen that happen before, Mm -hmm. um, where it's been so broad-based. And some of them have some detail related to that, and some it's more at the rhetorical level, but it's pretty much across the board. Uh, the, the, the other interesting thing that I see is the ones that are more detailed all seem to be going down that path of taking the Farm Bill conservation programs, greatly increasing their funding, focusing more on climate, and coming up with some innovative ways to support farmers who are doing the most innovative things on the landscape. And so there seems to be a surprising degree of unanimity um, uh, amongst the candidates. And so that's um, that will be very interesting to see. Mm-hmm. In past elections, sometimes the focus on agriculture-related issues in general uh, is intense until the January Iowa caucuses. And then when they're over, you don't hear about agriculture yeah. much <laughs> after that. Um, and in fact, you know, previous candidates who have become president have often forgotten what it was they did promise right. going into the Iowa mm. caucuses. I don't think that's going to be the case on this issue because I think climate is going to be so big on the agenda for any new administration. And then I should hasten to add that um, it's probably obvious to listeners, but that you know, there's nothing from the Trump campaign on this issue. Right. Um, so and that's why I'm just concentrating on the Democrats. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that, if anything, there we have experienced a lot of rolling back of any sort of uh, standards or policies that addressed climate change, even generally speaking. But on that mm-hmm. note, we know that farmers in rural communities like overwhelmingly supported Trump in 2016 and I'm wondering given all of the things that have happened from like the economic realities just the farm economy in general this renewed focus on like the need to kind of focus on how to support producers in mitigating the effects of climate change 
Do you think that that's going to continue in terms of, do you think that they will support Trump again? I know it's reading of the tea leaves. I don't know if yeah. either of you have heard of anything a about l- that. A little bit hard to look into that crystal ball very far. I think the trade war is probably the biggest thing that is causing people to think twice about where their support might lay in the future. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the administration has been you know, quite politic about making sure that there were billions of dollars in bailout funds to make up for the lost economic markets as a result of the trade wars. But that, even that being said, if, if some of the big agreements that are being talked about as, you know, about to happen early next year don't in fact happen, that could be a game changer. But if they do happen or happen to a big enough extent to see markets change, then um, I would guess that there won't be as big a change in people's voting patterns as there will be if, it, if things tank further. Okay. Um, all right, last question. Uh, we have these policy recommendations. Now what? What is What needs to happen in terms of Uh, moving the needle and who needs to do what now (laughs) mark do you want to kick us off with that i'm not sure what to say i know that the um uh house select committee on uh the climate crisis has invited a lot of uh input i think the uh commentary closed on november 22nd and nsac and many of its or um member groups submitted comments and a lot of it was based on the research that was done here. Great. Ferd, anything to add to that? Yeah, and so the speaking of the select committee, they will be issuing their report in March, and then um, Speaker Pelosi has said that they intend to take up climate legislation in 2020 on the House floor. It remains to be seen exactly how comprehensive that is, um, or even whether it, it happens or not, but it's certainly their intent. Um, so I, I would look towards their report in March as being the critical next step in terms of U.S. policy. And, and uh, you know, the, but there's no expectation that the Senate would take anything up next year. So yeah. all eyes are there for on 2021. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. I want to, Mark and Ford, thank you so much for coming on the show and unpacking this incredible report and also addressing some of my other questions that were out of left field. <laughs> I appreciate it, Jenna. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> okay. Eating Matters is produced with help from Jessica Duncan and Julia Devon um, and our show engineer. Big thanks to Jeet Paul. Show music is by, show music is, uh, by Tim Archer. All episodes of our show are available on on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.